With that, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at this text. So, Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord. We um, come before you and just ask that you would help us, Lord, as we study um, Malachi. Lord, this um, little prophetical book that concludes the Old Testament, we pray that you would um, illuminate the meaning of your word. Lord, help us to see uh, the big picture and the problems uh, that Malachi addresses. Lord, I pray that you would, um, Lord, as your word goes out, it so often convicts and challenges us. And so, Father, we ask that you would um, you would do that to us, Lord, um, so that ultimately, Lord, we would um, repent, we would confess, we would bow before you, and that we would truly live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. For in that place, Lord, I believe, is where um, it really is the best place for us. Yet our hearts are so prone to wander, are so prone to not care about you or your instructions. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So we're going to, our text is actually Malachi 2, verse 10 through 3, 6. But in covering the sort of the overarching theme, um, as we cover this for three weeks, I feel that it's important to sort of, uh, to kind of review where we, where we came from and to see the, the sort of where the book is moving. And so in chapter one, verse one, we read the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And so in the first verse is sort of the introduction to this letter, this, this, it sort of sets the stage. The word oracle means burden or weight. And so we see that, um, that God has something that is burdening him, that there is this weight upon him. And he is going to deliver this oracle. There are actually six sort of themes that flow through Malachi. He is giving this message to his chosen people, to the nation of Israel. And he's doing this through the prophet Malachi, uh, which Malachi, the meaning of this word means my messenger. We know very little about this prophet. And so to set the stage, I want to review some of the historical setting of Israel to see where we find ourselves historically. So if we can go to the next slide over. It's a graph moving uh, sort of through history. It's just the next, the white one there. Um, So over here on the left, we see creation sort of as we work our way through seeing Israel. At this point um, up here, there's the entrance into Canaan. So they enter into the promised land. They conquer the promised land. Um, They've completed everything. Their judges are established to sort of govern the people of Israel. We have this period of judges. Um, At this section, what we see is Israel had looked around at the other nations. The other nations had kings. They had called out to God that they would have a king. And so God allowed them to have their first king, King Saul. Saul would have a son named King David. David would would reign, would um, do very well financially, um, and God would bless them as a nation. Everything was sort of set up for Solomon to come on scene. Solomon um, inherited this great nation. He lived during a season of peace. 
his main mission was to, to sort of um, to build the temple that God had sort of given the the foundation, the groundwork, all of the instructions to David. But David, because of his sin, was uh, forbidden from building this temple. And so David created all of the master plan. He, I mean, he got the instructions, the worship, all of the materials. And basically Solomon had to lead uh, to, to building of this great temple uh, for the worship of Israel. After Solomon died, uh, the, the nation fell apart. Uh, Rehoboam was Solomon's son, was a horrible leader. Uh, the nation was divided between north and south. Um, there's a series of... Uh, during this period, the division of the kingdom, um, where there were kings in the north and the south, pretty much none of them were good. If my memory serves right, there was one good king during that period. Um, and in 580 or 722 BC, if we can go to the next slide. So as Israel, they're divided now as a nation between the north, this section up here, and the south. And during this period, prophets would come on scene. Prophets would give warning that God was going to send discipline to them as a nation because they had wandered from him. They had uh, they, they'd stopped caring about the things that he cared about. They were acting in an evil way. And so in 722 B.C., 722 B.C., um, what happened is the northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in, they conquered them, they took their people, they hauled them away to their land, and the northern part was lost. 150 years later, in 586 BC, um, the southern kingdom was taken by Babylon. Uh, Leading up to this, the prophet Isaiah came on scene. He warned them, he warned them, he warned them, saying that God was going to deal with them. And Babylon came in 586 BC, took over the southern part of the nation, and they hauled the people away to Babylon. This is where we read about the story of uh, uh, Daniel and his being taken away, the indoctrination of the young men into their culture. And so from 586 BC, um, Israel no longer existed as a nation. Their, uh, their people were scattered amongst the region. Basically, these two nations were up here, if this was the map. Um, Babylon and Assyria were over there. Um, if we can turn the next slide, we're going to zoom in to the northern part of the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem right here. There's a little, you, it's hard to see, but there's a little round circle of green that represents Judea. This is the region um, that uh, of, of Israel, um, or not the nation, but the, the Jews that Malachi is addressing are in this region. Um, what had happened is in 538 B.C., we're kind of working backwards because everything's heading towards Christ. When we look at our calendar, we're heading away from Christ. And so 722, the nation's taken captive. The northern section, 150 years later in 586 BC, the southern um, part is taken captive. And so from 586 to 538, so what is that, 50 years or so, um, Cyrus, um, who is uh, the, the leader overall, He allowed the children of Israel to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding their temple, which had been destroyed. In 516 BC, Zerubbabel, he finished building the temple. And then later in 445 BC, Nehemiah goes back and he builds the walls around the temple. 
This is a massive piece of land. Um, During the time of Nehemiah, the building of the walls, our prophet Malachi is is what's referred to as a contemporary of um, Nehemiah. Uh, He came on a little bit later. We know that um, it's believed by most that Malachi was written in about 397 BC. So 400 years before the birth of Christ. Um, Malachi, uh, while the Bible is not laid out in chronological order, Malachi actually sits in the, the proper um, place chronolo- uh, chronologically. Um, this would be the last prophet to speak before John the Baptist would come on scene 400 years later. And as a prophet, really as an Old Testament prophet, he wanders onto the pages of the New Testament, preparing the way for the Messiah. Malachi is a significant book because within its pages, it's, it, within its words, we're, today we will see this prophecy concerning John the Baptist that he would come. Now, the issue that had happened or that was going on during this window, the the temple had been rebuilt. The walls had been rebuilt. Um, Worship again was happening. The sacrifices were going on. But the people were really quite apathetic towards God. They were not uh, doing the worship the way that it was supposed to be done. They were offering animals that were not to the standard. And so the first oracle, verses 2 through 5, of, of the first chapter is really the heart of Malachi. God begins with the, the issue that's at hand. He says in the very first four words, I have loved you. That's the message that God has for Israel. He says, I've loved you. Last week I read from one commentator that described the, the relationship between God and Israel as a husband and wife where the wife was asked, hey, how's your relationship with your husband going. And she says, Oh, everything's going great. We're fine. Everything's wonderful. And then the husband has asked, how, how's your relationship? How are things going? And the husband responds, my wife doesn't care for me. Quite frankly, I could disappear off the face of the earth and she wouldn't even care. Things are not good. And he painted the picture. He said that this was a situation that God was the husband that is, that his heart he deeply loved his wife, his Israel. And she just sort of wandered from him. And the response is, God says, I loved you. This dialogue that we see throughout Malachi where God, the, the prophet is sort of providing uh, both sides to this conversation. God says, I have loved you. And the very first thing out of Israel's mouth is, how have you loved us? And he begins to explain to them, like I I've chosen you. And he goes between this, I love Jacob and hated Esau. And this isn't about emotions. It's about covenant, about that God chose Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, I believe it says that God explains that he chose them not because Israel was great, not because they were mighty, not because they were better than anybody else. It was exactly the opposite, that they were nobody, that they were nothing. And it was God in his love and his majesty, his sovereignty, that he selected them out of the normal order and made them into this great nation. And here they are questioning, how does God even love them? And so with this theme of God's love for Israel, 
it flows throughout the whole book of Malachi. I believe if you take Malachi, if you take a section out of it without recognizing this first part of God declaring his love, you miss sort of um, everything about this. In chapter 1, verse 6, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 9, the second oracle comes. And there we read in the first part in chapter 1, God begins to describe the practices that were, that were troubling to him. That as they were making these sacrifices before him, as they were making their offerings, that the animals that God had made very clear instructions, that, that when they made their offerings, their sacrifice, that it was supposed to be of their first fruits, it was supposed to be of their best The animals were supposed to be free of blemish, free of any sort of ailment or injuries. But what the people were doing is they were offering blind animals. They were offering lame animals. They were offering sick, defiled animals that they were of no value to to them. And so they're throwing out their junk to God and they're saying, oh, we're going through the religious motions. We're offering animals. But these animals were worthless. And God says, you, how would this go if you made your offering, if you tried to pay your taxes in this way, that you took all of your lame animals that were of no value and you tried to, to present them to the governor? There'd be no way that you would do this. Last week, I sort of posed the question or challenged, you know, but not really because I don't want anybody to go to prison, is to, you know, tax time is coming. And when the tax man says, hey, you owe $2,000, to go through your closets, find all your old clothes that you're sick of wearing, find all the, the stuff that you would basically take to goodwill, walk it down to the IRS office and say, hey, I'm going to pay my taxes with that. I'm not quite sure what the IRS would do, but I don't think it would be good. And God's saying, if you did that with the governor and he wouldn't be happy, why do you think me as the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who gives you life, the one who's protected, provided and cared for you, How do you come before me and make these substandard offerings? All the way at the end of chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, we see the phrase, my name will be great amongst the nations. My name will be great among the nations. My name is to be feared. God points to his majesty. This almighty creator who loves us, desires, expects, that for those who are his children, that our offerings back to him would sort of reflect what we've received. And while the people that are making the offerings are being addressed in this section, they're not really the, the people who are being confronted in this, first, this second oracle. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the people who are being confronted are the priests, the, the, the pastors of the day, the people who are responsible for leading the nation in their worship and their sacrifices. They're allowing this, this really pathetic worship to, to happen. Reading through this, we sang a song, Don said something, that, oh, that, that song we sang, he said, this is sort of hard to sing and to, to mean it, that I surrender all. Um, there was a pastor in history of, you know, a couple decades ago, I forget his name and where, and, but with that song, he would not allow the congregation to sing that part, I surrender all for fear that they were singing stuff 
that they didn't mean. For them to sing that line, I surrender all, when they really weren't surrendering all to God, would be putting their, um, their, their souls, their relationship with God in some sort of jeopardy, which I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about, but I respect the guy for having a care for his people to make him think about when you're singing these songs, you're not just performing, you're not just going through the motions. When you're singing these songs, the idea is that we are standing before our creator and we're singing them to him. And so to sing those those words when you don't mean it, like it would be better just not even to to sing those words at all. Don't sing to the Lord, I surrender all, when you haven't surrendered anything or very little to him. And I think that this is the issue that God says in verse, um, where was it? Um, in chapter 2, verse, um, see, this is going in my mind. Um, It's going to elude me if I try to find it right here. But he asks, isn't there even one? Um, Basically, he says, isn't there one among you? I wish that there were one that would shut the gates. Basically, that there would be a priest amongst all of the priests as the offerings are happening, that he would close the gate because the way the worship was happening, the responsibility was on the priest and they weren't stopping the inappropriateness, the lack of reverence, the lack of fear, the lack of awe before God as they're making their offerings, that he wished that there was one priest that would shut the gates, but there wasn't. And he goes on and he says, if you continue in this way, if you continue these sacrifices, basically what I'm going to do is consequence is going to come. You're going to have your festivals. You're going to be going through your sacrifices. And I'm going to take their refuse and I'm going to smear it on your face. Which sounds like a horrible punishment. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he talks about that he's going to, to, to work towards reconciliation. That what he ultimately wants to do is to, uh, almost in my mind, the good old days. But back to how he established Levite in the Levitical priestly line. And he says, back then, this is in verse 5 of chapter 2, my covenant with him, the Levitical priestly line, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reference. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and the unrighteous was not, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. And he walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. He said, this is what the priestly line was all about. Their role as priests, my role as a pastor, is to help people get on track with God. And he, he ends with this firm, firm warning. He says, but as for you, you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by the instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I've made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality and instruction. And so from the, that conclusion, that warning to the priest, Malachi, through God's instruction, turns his attention to the people. And verse 10 through 16 are, are difficult. I mean, they're difficult verses. I, I, for weeks, I, I, um, I was like, how does this, like, how does this fit? 
there are going to be some things here that are terribly difficult um, that can that can kind of hurt as we get into these verses. Ben was lined up to preach, but then I called in sick two weeks ago with the flu, and so I'm like, oh, I'll take it all. <laughs> but as we look at this, there's a, there's a key word that we need to look at. It appears five times between verses 10 and 16, and the word is treacherously. This is a word that means to act faithlessly or deceitfully. It's the opposite of acting with integrity or dependability. And so the issue at heart, marriage is definitely something that's going to be hit on um, within this section. But it's easy to overlook that, I, that really what the problem is, is their interaction in all relationships, their relationships with each other as people, their relationships, the workplace environment, their relationships uh, uh, within the family setting. And I, I really feel like I should take more time here, but because I decided to fly over, I have to guard myself from going deeper into this section. But I want you to notice that word treacherously and how it's used as I read through this section. And then as the book sort of hits and it gets very sort of, I don't want to say dark, but it should stir in your heart sort of fear in the whole, I, I think of Peter as he gives his sermon in Acts chapter two, when he concludes, he concludes with this hard word and it says that they were, they were cut to their quick, but he doesn't, he kind of like stops and they say, well, what now? What should we do? And then he continues. And I think that at the end of this oracle, as we turn to verse 17 and into chapter 3, which we're going to look at today, there's hope given. We see the promise of the coming Messiah that, that he would come, that he would bring redemption and help and, and help us in our relationship with God, that ultimately we could live right with each other. And so with that, I'll read our passage. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offspring or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garments with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. 
So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earners, wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the fault, the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed." So this is a this is kind of a prickly sort of area, and due to time, I'm I'm really limited at how how deep I can go in this section. I, I realize that this is an area that we could spend a lot of time in. Um, going back to verse ten of chapter two, this to me is at the at the heart. Do we not all have one father? Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother as to profane the covenant of our fathers? And if we skip down to the very end of verse 16, and it says, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so this idea of treacherously is is, uh, to be faithlessly, to, to act deceitfully. I think it sort of embodies the, the saying of, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Like if we're going to survive in this world, we got to play by the, the world's rules. And we got to, it doesn't matter who you got to take out. It's all about numero uno. And I, I don't care who I got to take out to get to the top. I got to take care of number one. And so I'm going to play by those rules. And, and that's what was happening. Even though they were uh, children of God, It'd be the equivalent of, oh, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to click the box of going to church, which which in our culture today, there are many who are claimed to be Christian who are never even in a church. Uh, but I would say that this sort of what was happening here is they're, they're worshiping. They're going through the motions. Um, they would do their time on on Sabbath. They would They would do their hour, however long it took. Then as they went about their week, it was like there was no connection with God. Their, their relationships with each other, their neighbors, their friends, their family, their marriages, they were all a mess. And, and none of these relationships reflected the kind of relationships that God wanted to see. 
this problem would continue and I believe it would get worse for 400 years until Jesus would come on scene. And I think about many of Jesus's instructions and when Jesus was asked, well, what are, what's the greatest commandment of all? And what was Jesus' response? That you love the Lord God with all your heart and that you love one another yourselves. Like this whole idea of love and this is the exact opposite picture of what was happening. And, and thinking about this passage, it's been, how does this fit? There's these relationships and then there's a lot of this in marriage. So there's the relationships that but then when we come to um, the, the marriage situation, look at verse 11. I want to show you the various problems. In verse 11, we read, Judah has dealt treacherously. There's that word for the second time. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And so the first thing we see is there's the temple. We'd already looked at the inappropriate worship, the sacrifices that were being made. And throughout this section, if you mark your Bible, I went through and I sort of highlighted the ands to sort of show the the differences and things that were going on. I believe this and shows the second issue and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob and everyone who awakens and answers or presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So as they came back to the land, as they came back to the temple, the young guys saw the young Palestinian women who were not Jews. And they, hey, these girls are pretty cute. I'm going to start marrying these girls. They don't have the same God as me, but they don't have the same faith background, but that's okay. They're cute. And so we're going to start marrying. Um, so this is a problem that God wants those of faith that are his children to, to marry amongst others that have that the same values. And it wasn't happening during this time. And there's a whole lot of directions I could go with this. I, this has nothing to do with um, uh, racial composition. We started the book, we started this year with Ruth. And we see, uh, remember Ruth and Boaz, and then Jesus would come through this line and Ruth, a Moabite, married um, Boaz. There was no problem there because she had converted. She believed the same as him, although she was of a different nationality. There would be stigma connected, but God doesn't frown on that. We see that the Messiah came through there. The issue is, is faith. That when I see that in the scriptures, the number one thing for the single person that, that should matter to you is, I love Jesus. Does this person love Jesus too? Because as we yoke our lives together, this is the, it, it doesn't matter the color of their hair, doesn't matter their hobbies, like that, that our faith in Christ should be the central thing in our marriages. And so if you're single and you love Jesus, that should be the number one sort of box that you should care about. And then moving on from here, where was I at? Verse uh, 13. He says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer <coughs> regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. 
Yet you say, for what reason? So this is the picture. They're sitting at the altar. They're, they're crying at the altar. They're, they're making these sacrifices. They're crying out to God. Yet God's not responding. They're asking, for what reason is God not responding? And then the response here is, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt, there's this word again for the third time, who you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. So the second problem where I've lost count, I should probably not use numbers. They were having inappropriate, they were dealing with each other wrong. The offerings they were making upon the altar were wrong. The, the young men were marrying girls that didn't share the same faith system as they did. And then we see that these older Jewish men who were married, who had made vows with their wives, got to this land and they began departing from their marriages and leaving their wives for these younger uh, girls in the area that no longer valued. And God is not happy with this. Now in this section, we see this all the way through into Jesus's time. The issue why men I think are addressed exclusively in this section is the men during this time were the ones who held all of the power in the marriage to stay married or not to be married. For them to walk away from their marriage was super easy for them to do legally with no consequences, no financial implications. They could just walk away. And the, the wife would have no source of help, no resources. And so while this passage deals with men, I think when we look at our context today, there's sort of, especially in the state of California, there's no fault divorce. There's equal sort of power between male and female. And women leave their husbands today just as much as men leave their husbands. And so don't read this today like, oh, it's just the man's in trouble if he walks away. And the girl, I can just kind of, I can pull ship and go away and be fine because he's just talking to men. I think that today, like for, for both of us, men and women, this applies to you ladies just as much. Like God doesn't want you abandoning your husband after however many years. God says there's a vow that has been made. One of the translations takes this and kind of basically says that, oh no, there it is, verse 14. Then a New American Standard doesn't read it. He says, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against you whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And there's this picture on those days, many, many moons ago when you first got married and you're all floating on air because you're so in love with each other when you make those vows. God says, when, the, when that happened, I was a witness and I was there with you and you made this covenant. So don't go departing just because you're many years away. Verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. 
And so when they're making their, their tears, the men were making the sacrifices. They're there crying at the altar. Why is God not here? And God says, what are you talking about? You've divorced your wife that you made a covenant with. You've taken a, a girls who are served different gods, yet you're still going through the motion, sort of playing church, as we would say today. He says, I'm not going to listen to this. And, and this... Okay, for time, there's, I think there are three things that I want to kind of f- fly over. I, I, clearly, when I look at this section, and I look at the whole of Malachi, the, the, the problem begins with that people are responding to the truth that God loves them, that God loves you, and your response is sort of an apathetic, oh, how do you love us, God? What, do you, what have you done for us? And it leads to worship that doesn't really show the reverence or the awe that God deserves. We, we can never match him. We can never repay him. We are the created being. But, but there's this sort of this level of response that God who loves us passionately would hope that we would respond to him to the best of our nature or ability that we would show him adoration and joy and and we would want nothing more than to honor our relationship with him because he has done more than we could ever possibly imagine for us. And so the priests are condemned for how they're allowing worship to happen then we're going to see the message of hope and we're going to see there is going to be the challenge for the people's offerings. But then in this section, how does this fit with that apathetic response? And the best thing that I can gather from this is our relationship with God is not just some sort of religious box that we check. Oh, I went to church on Sunday and I I did that. Now I'm going to go out and live my life. Our relationship with God bleeds through every aspect of our life or God desires it to be that way. With your friends, God wants you to honor him and worship him through how you treat one another in your relationships. As you work, that how you go about doing your work, that you honor him, that you bring him glory, integrity, that that you how you live at your workplace is different than those who, who don't know God. When it comes to, to your marriages, that this is where our relationship with God truly um, is demonstrated. We see in First Peter, which we just covered in chapter 3, I think there's a couple things that we see that I see in this section, I wanted to sort of address the single people, which I kind of feel like I already did. That as you are looking for a spouse, looking for somebody to matter, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of God, then the person, the number one thing that you're looking for in a spouse is that they love God the way you love God. Secular, psychology, like like if you go secular, non-secular, Christian, all across the board, like, your faith, yoking with somebody, connecting with somebody that shares your same is super, super critical. 
to those that are married, God wants you to work on your marriage more than anything else in the world. It, 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 it continually surprises me how important your marriage relationship is in relation to your relationship with God. Like how your marriage is going, that's important to God in your relationship with God. God certainly does not want, if you're married to somebody who is a non-believer, God does not want you to leave that person because we see that God hates divorce. In 1 Peter chapter 3, what we looked at, the very first verse, it talks about the woman who's married to a non-believer, that you're to, to live your life in a way that's pleasing to God so that your life without words may lead your husband to faith. And I would say that the true, the same thing applies to the husband. You get down to, I think it's verse 7, and it, t- it warns the husband to, to honor your wife, to, to treat her a way that's pleasing to God, because if you don't treat your wife well, what does it say? That your prayers are actually hindered before God. And so I don't, all I know in this section is that somehow our marriages are super important to God. And our relationship with God, what he wants is for us to like really Um, value our marriages. And this is a very raw thought. I'm still sort of like just looking at this and I wish I had more time to sort of go into this. And then the third or the final thing that on this section that I wanted to touch on is, is to those who have been divorced is look at verse 16. It does not say for I hate those who have been divorced. There are many believers that have divorced in their past that I know really struggle with this, that they have a divorce in their past and they believe that God hates them because they have been divorced. It doesn't say that. What it says is, I hate divorce. I've ex- I have Divorce is something that I've, I've never been divorced, but I've been around and a child from multiple divorces. I have all kinds of friends who have been divorced. And the one thing that I've never, ever heard any person who has been divorced say is that, yo, divorce is a great thing. It's wonderful. Like, you know, because this isn't just talking about when the legal document comes back out six months after you filed in California that you, okay, now you guys are split. I, I believe when God says he hates divorce, I think it, it goes to whenever you guys are hunky dory at the marriage, at the, at the, the aisle making your vows to where things start falling apart. And, and sometimes it takes six weeks for the whole marriage to dissolve. Sometimes it's 20, 30 years. And I think that whole process, God hates. There is nothing pleasant. There is nothing in God's design for divorce. And I think at the heart of this divorce, what he's saying is this whole relationship is people dealing with one another treacherously. God wants our marriages to be fun. God wants our marriages to have deep, deep love for one another. Doesn't mean that it's always good. It's always good times. There's good times and there's bad times. And through the journey of the ups and downs, there's a depth that comes. And so if you've been divorced, 
know that God loves you. Know that God has paid the penalty for your divorce. Know that there is hope beyond divorce. This week we stumbled across a radio program. It was on the, um, a Christian radio station. I, I don't even know what radio station it was, but a lady who, with an Australian accent, apparently she's American, but she grew up in Australia. And she's the author of um, the Children's Storybook Bible. We've had it for years. I've only read sections of it. Anna's read it a bunch of times. And every time she's reading, she's like, you need to read this Bible because it, 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 she handles it in such a, a different way than any a children's Bible study. And she's, Anna's been asking me for like a long time, like, hey, can you just read it? I'm like, I, I don't have time to sit down to read it to a children's Bible, but I'm going to do it now. Like she's like, it's now on my to-do list and I'm going to read it. And after hearing this lady speak, it was fascinating. She's like, I grew up in a Christian home and I, for my whole life, when I read, when I read the Bible, I would read a story. I would read about David and Goliath. And, I, and, and what came across to me was that David slayed Goliath. David acted courageously. David did all of this stuff. And if I want God to love me, then I have to act courageous and do things like this because my love, God's love for me is contingent on how I behave. And she kind of went through stories and how she went through it. And so she then, as an adult, began to see the story of God's redemptive plan of how God is a God of love and his desire is to restore and redeem people. And as she was talking in this text, dealing with these broken relationships, I had sort of like an aha moment that while this passage can be difficult and convicting, as we turn to verse 17 and into chapter one, the whole next oracle and throughout this book, there really is a story of hope that if you want your relationships to be restored, if you want to have relationships that are healthy and honoring to God, you're not going to do it in your own strength, in your own might. We need him to help us. And so in verse 17, they, he says, you've wearied the Lord with your words that you say how we wearied him. And God's response is, you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. And then you say, where is the God of justice? So, so you're coming before the Lord saying, God, you're calling evil good. And that God's just okay. And uh, God delights in all people. But, but then the next thing you ask is, where's the God of justice? And God's just kind of shaking his head and says, you have no bearing of what right and wrong and holiness and what justice is. And in chapter three, he says, behold, I'm going to send you my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. There's this promise of the Messiah who would come. And but prior to the Messiah, this messenger would come. And this is John the Baptist. This is sort of leading into God's going to go silent. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist is going to enter the pages of the New Testament, declaring 
that the Messiah has come to prepare your hearts to repent, to get right with God. If you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke. In the Gospel of Mark, he does not, uh, he begins his story later in Jesus' life. And so in Luke, the very first thing Luke begins with after his introduction is this story of John the Baptist. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So this is the setting. He is there doing his priestly duty. We learn about Zacharias. We learn about Elizabeth. They're older, and not only are they older, they don't have children. She is barren. And so as an old man, he is, he's continuing his, his priestly duties. They're both righteous people. In verse 8, now while it happened while, that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their God. And so here Zacharias is. To, to be able to go into the holiest of holies, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. If your lot was ever drawn to do this, you would never be chosen again. So here he is, nearing the end of his life. He goes in there. I don't know if nearing the end of his life, but he's, def- he's advanced in years, it says. He gets this opportunity. He's in there lighting the incense, kind of doing his own thing. And then as he's doing this, an angel appears to him, a terribly frightful thing. The angel says, relax, don't be afraid. I'm here. Your prayers have been answered. Your wife is going to get pregnant. You're going to have a son. He's going to come. The spirit will be upon him while in the womb. It says he won't drink wine. He'll be a, he'll be a Nazarite. And as he comes out, he's going to turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord. And then in verse 17, he's going to quote from Malachi. God hasn't spoken to them in 400 years. And in the privacy of this place, here's this man listening to the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says, it is he who will go forth as a forerunner to him. That's Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's the very last line of Malachi. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then basically 
Zechariah says, how can this possibly be true? And the angel Gabriel says, dude, I'm the angel Gabriel. You're in the holiest of holies. I just have told you this. And so because you don't believe, you're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. And when he's born, you're going to name him John. And so he goes out to the temple. Everybody's like, what happened in there? And he can't speak. And so when we come to Malachi chapter 3 and we read this verse, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before me. I love Christmas. We all love Christmas. It's a lot of fun. But don't let um, the American sort of consumerism drown out the reality of what we are celebrating. This, the birth of Christ is not some fairy tale. This huge amount of prophecy was fulfilled in his birth. Huge amount of promises. His whole message on earth was... De- to make payment for our sins, that we might have redemption, that we might be restored to the one and only living God. He says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? See, God is holy. And when we see the picture of humanity, anytime any human in Scripture encounters God, we see that they fall on their face because they recognize his holiness. And there's this great warning. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's finer and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So there's this picture that when he comes, There's this refining process as fire to gold that as you burn it, the impurities rise to the surface so that the pure stuff can be removed. There's this picture of fuller soap, which the best thing I can come up with to understand what this is, it's like bleach. I can't tell you how many t-shirts I have that have a white line across the belly button because I think I'm going to go clean off the counters with bleach, get it all nice and clean. And I think I'm not going to touch it, but somehow I touch the counter and I ruin my t-shirts and it gets me in trouble. But this is this picture of fuller soap, almost like lye, that it purifies anything that it touches. And this is this purification process that the Lord is going to bring. And as we see Jesus entering the scenes of the temple, kicking over tables, challenging the religious leaders at a very young age, there's this purification process that's happening. And I stopped in verse 3 before this, so that, and this is the beautiful picture of this warning so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers and against adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I am, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So the overarching picture that we need to see here is that the picture is after God confronts the sin and the unrighteousness and the apathy of worship of him, he says, repent, turn to me, because a day is coming when 
when your chances are going to be done away with, that punishment will come. And he's pointing them towards reconciliation. And so when I look at this and I see the callousness of Israel and how they so often, after God's mercies, they respond for a little bit and then they stray. And so we who know Christ, we need to keep our eyes on him. We need to stay focused on him. We need to abide with him. And the reality or the main thrust is God's love for us is great. And he desires us to respond to him. And so with that, all, let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your great love for us. Father, we come before you and Lord, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to have hearts that are right with you, that our worship would be pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, that you would um, do a work in our hearts that if we don't know you as Savior, that we would come to know you as our Savior, Lord. And for those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, as Savior, we pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to keep you as a priority in our lives, Lord. Father, that you would help us to have um, healthy relationships that honor you and are pleasing to you in our workplace, in our marriages, and our friends, Lord. Father, we pray that as we go about our days that we would have hearts of worship and adoration of you, for we are thankful and grateful. We're thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. And we pray that during this Christmas season as we enjoy our friends and family and just the spirit of this season, Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep Christ and his significance at the forefront of all that we do. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.